Hello and welcome to the Logistics Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams, editor of SHD Logistics magazine. When we first started the podcast, we set out to turn our readers into listeners and our listeners into readers. And I think we've achieved that. Thank you so much for your support so far. Um, We've had thousands of downloads of the podcast um, and we're really pleased with the results. We've had great feedback from you and from the team and the bosses. You may have noticed that alongside the main podcast, which I call a docu-podcast, we've actually released another two types of podcasts. So we've turned the logistics podcast more into a channel. So think of it as Netflix, which has different shows. So you have the main show, which is the docu-podcast, and then you have the news update, which has actually got lovely new red artwork. But we've also got something called Out of Office, which has nice blue artwork. So you'll notice that in your podcast feed. So let me tell you a little bit more about the shows. Recent news that we've covered is something you may have heard of called Brexit. We actually visited uh, Europa and they talked about their Brexit preparation. So if you haven't listened to that one, we recommend that you do. And yes, we will be doing more of these on Brexit and other topics. The other new show, which is in a beautiful blue, is called Out of Office. Um, So that's when Assistant Editor David Tran and I are out of office interviewing people. A couple of weeks ago, I was out on London's rainy streets interviewing Sam Clark, who's the founder of Newt, which is an all-electric delivery company. We thought it was a good time to interview them because the ultra-low emission zone had just come into play. So we wanted to find out how that was impacting on urban logistics and about how it's actually not impacted on them because they're an all-electric fleet. However, what was impacted on them that week was the Extinction Rebellion protests, which were also taking place. So I think they felt a bit of disruption there. So that brings me to this episode, which we've entitled Humans Plus Robots. You may remember that we did one last year called Humans Versus Robots. But I think the conversations that have happened since suggest that actually it's a human plus robot environment that we're heading towards. We actually conducted a couple of our interviews for this episode at an event called Kronos Live, where I was invited to host a panel with a couple of people that you may know. Peter Ward, who's the chief exec of UKWA, and another gentleman called Professor John Mannersbell, who's the managing director of Transport Intelligence, which is a research company. They kindly agreed to come and meet me at a hotel in Heathrow in front of an audience to do a live recording. Um, which we're going to dip into. Unfortunately, Vin Granger from iForce, who we asked to join us for the panel, couldn't come along, but he was able to share his thoughts with us in a phone interview, which we'll also be sharing with you after the panel. So we don't only have uh, humans plus robots for you this episode. We've got the usual news with David Tran and property update with David Tame. We'll also be sharing with you an interview with one of the members of the Logistics 100, Damien Alexander, who is the VP of Lidos Logistics UK division. Damien shared some really interesting examples of what logistics means on the front line. Um, He was kind enough to share them, so help me understand a bit better. If there's anything you've missed, anything you'd like to hear more of, then please do email me, kirsty.adams at informa.com. All feedback is welcome. I hope you enjoyed the episode.
think about warehouses of the future, they just see robots and autonomy. And I think, of course, that enables us to deliver efficiencies and, and take our cost and provide a better service. But I see it as being really a combination of more probably investment in technology, but at the same time, you can't take the human person out of the loop. And for me, you know, they're absolutely critical to the successful operation of the warehouse. We're on the cusp at the moment of moving this industry away from the old boy in the brown coat with the clipboard wandering around, you know, doing the stock taking to this very vibrant, high speed, high velocity industry now that is very, very dynamic. And in many cases, you'll have labour actually competing against very, very low cost robotics, which will drive down the wage rates even further. So the challenge for government is firstly about reskilling or upskilling the labour at the moment which are working in warehouses to enable them to fulfil more value-adding roles. But it is the basic one of, of actually where are these jobs going to come from. In the traditional world, to be a picker, you needed to be able to walk quite a long distance and sustain that over a whole shift. With the advent of robotics and such like, there's potentially greater accessibility of people who are less able still to contribute effectively to an operation. This is the point of the podcast where I like to bring the team in and discuss the topic that's relevant to this episode's features. So, I've asked the team to think about how their jobs could be automated, actually, in future. I'd like to start with my colleague, Joel Martin. Joel is sat to my right. Joel, how could your job be automated? Luckily, I don't think my job can be automated. <laughs> um, I'm in a sales role, so my role is dependent on human interaction, building and developing a rapport with customers and answering their queries and trying to give them an informed opinion on why I think they should be using our products. So I don't think it can be automated. You know, I've developed the people that I'm talking to. I know who's relevant and who's not. So I think my job's safe for another month or so. Thank you, Joel. And to my left, I have Rihanna Kettle. Rihanna, can your job be automated? I think automation is becoming much more common in marketing from a perspective of so much of, what's the word? The execution and delivery side is now automated. So what used to be a marketer's job is now done by a computer, which is quite scary. But I think it means that marketing teams are a bit more streamlined and tend to focus on more like higher level strategy things. But worryingly, although you always think like with marketing, the creative side is always going to be human. But I think there are like systems now, like AI systems that are so intuitive that they can like write marketing copy for you. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. Oh, uh, to, to I mean, <laughs> please, don't, please don't agree with that. I think it's more like, it's scary because you always think, yeah, the creative bit is meant to be, a robot couldn't do that, but actually yeah. definitely can and there probably will one day, so. Can I just add that I think your target audience will always appreciate a person and a face? But I agree that, yes, a lot of it is and can be automated, but I think human interaction, I think, goes a long way. Mm. And still but you'd, you'd be surprised at how much can be automated now. Humans are important, I think. David Tran sat opposite me. Can your job be automated? 
I would say no, but I harbour the thought that maybe in 30 years' time or so, we can have this like, sort of futuristic sort of space odyssey, that sort of you know feel to it. So um, I guess with our roles as reporters, you know, you have to be live at the scene and you know cover, and that being right there reporting on it is is something that obviously humans can obviously intuitively do. But I feel like if it was covered by anybody else other than human, I mean, I just kind of recite this classic Simpsons scene where Mr. Burns hires a team of monkeys to build a publishing empire and reads an excerpt from a monkey's attempt to write a novel, uh, reciting a famous line from a Dickens novel. This is a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. Let's see. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. You stupid monkey. <laughs> you shut up. So I just kind of feel like everyone in this industry with uh, an excitement and enthusiasm around logistics technology, everyone comes to the term of cobots about how uh, humans can collaborate with robots. So maybe we should look at maybe monkeys collaborating in robots and maybe looking at down the line whether they could up their game in a few years or so really so i don't know maybe there could be a time where humans don't need to play a part in 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 the writing side thanks team if you've got any opinions on this please do email kirsty.adams at informer.com final thanks to sales manager joel martin marketing executive rihanna kettle and assistant editor david tran Hi, this is Rihanna. I just want to let you know a bit more about IMHX. If you are listening to this podcast, I guarantee it's relevant to you. IMHX is the largest intralogistics exhibition returning to the NEC in Birmingham between the 24th to 27th of September this year, so less than five months away now. It's basically a great opportunity for you to meet over 400 of the leading providers of logistics products and services. And we've got some great exhibitors, including some big brands such as Toyota, Dematic, Heister Yale and Doosan. And this list just keeps growing. As well as an exhibition, we've got over 100 hours of free education, which is hosted in several theatres, including a keynote arena and tech solutions forum. It is free to attend IMHX. For visitors and you can register via our website www.imhx.net. Registration is open and we do advise interested visitors to register early because it means you are up to date with the latest news such as newly confirmed exhibitors, keynote speakers and sessions and also special offers. Just to remind you, that's IMHX returning to the NEC in Birmingham between the 24th and 27th of September. To get your ticket, you need to go to www.imhx.net where you can register for free. Back to the podcast. I'm David Tran, Assistant Editor of SHD Logistics, and it's that time in this episode to look at what has been happening in the logistics industry in the UK. Our top story. 
Amazon has announced plans to open a new fulfillment centre in Kegwood East Midlands with investment in this new facility, helping the online retailer meet customer demand, expand selection and enable small to medium sized businesses selling on Amazon to scale their businesses. Meanwhile, ShopDirect, who own retail names Very.co.uk and Littlewoods, has agreed to transfer its 215,000 square foot Raven Mills return centre in Oldham over to its partner Clipper Logistics. In full ownership of the site, Clipper will continue to provide returns activity for ShopDirect. The Raven Mills site was originally earmarked for closure in 2021 with the new deal potentially safeguarding up to 200 jobs in the area. In news affecting the future landscape of the grocery sector, supermarket giant Sainsbury's planned merger with Asda has been blocked by the Competition and Markets Authority, citing concerns over expected price rises, reductions in the quality and range of products available, or a poorer overall shopping experience. Its failed bid to merge with its rival has cost Sainsbury's £46 million, the supermarket has said. The CMA's Stuart McIntosh says the deal would have reduced competition. We considered it would be very difficult to actually verify and track these price reductions over time. But more fundamentally, these price promises didn't really address the fundamental competition concerns which we had as a result of two of the largest supermarket chains in the country merging, which would reduce competition in supermarkets, online shopping and at petrol filling stations, with the consequent impact on prices and service quality. And finally, online fashion retailer Boohoo has completed the extension build and fit-out of its distribution centre in Burnley, having announced that its automated facilities were up and running in April. The expansion will greatly improve picking efficiency and reduce costs in the financial year 2020 and beyond. If your company has any significant developments you would like to share, please get in touch with me at david.tran at informa.com. I look forward to hearing your exciting developments. Here's property editor David Tame for the latest developments across the UK logistics property market. Thank you, David. And now for the property news. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. That was Monty Python's Lumberjack song. And lumberjacks, when they're not cutting down trees and having their lunch and going to the lavatory, are also paying taxes and investing. And the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Quebec has taken all that lumberjack and other investing and pension savings and has developed a £35 billion property investment arm. Their Sovereign Wealth Fund has now acquired 130 acres in sites at Leeds, Sheffield, Crewe and Knowsley on Merseyside to develop up to £300 million worth of speculative industrial warehouses. Now, the Quebecois Sovereign Wealth Fund is far from the first major international investor take an interest in UK industrial property. The long list of international buyers is now formidable. What's particularly interesting about this one is that they have realised that it would make more sense to build their own warehouses as a way of getting into the UK warehouse market than buying pre-existing warehouses. This is a significant change. The rationale is perfectly straightforward. If you buy somebody else's warehouse, you have to pay their development profit. If you build it yourself, you don't have to. In fact, you can take the profit yourselves. 
this move is certainly going to produce an increase in the supply of warehouse floor space in the UK. The plan being nurtured by the Canadians will lead to about 2.6 million square feet of new warehousing and I think we should probably look to Leeds for the first signs of their activity. They have acquired from Haworth Group and Evans Property Group the 43-acre Gateway 45 site in Leeds. They will be working on this site, which uh, extends to about 166 acres, and could be producing up to 850,000 square feet of new floor space, starting perhaps as soon as this summer. The international theme, and unfortunately I don't have a piece of music to go with this one, extends to Gatwick Airport as well. A US-based warehouse property giant called Hillwood Properties is planning more or less exactly the same trick, only on a smaller scale. They're going to build 168,000 square feet near the airport on a site at Red Hill, a 7.7-acre site which was formerly occupied by Phillips Research Laboratories. Once again, the rationale here is if you can build it yourself, that is infinitely financially preferable to buying somebody else's warehouses. And I think this is a trend we're going to see a great deal more of in the coming months as investors scrap for a share of what is still really a rather tight market. Good news for international investors, perhaps rather less good news for Mike Ashley, the owner of Sports Direct, over the last couple of weeks. He managed to lose an enormous amount of money, perhaps as much as £130 million, when takeover attempts at Debenhams collapsed and the firm fell into administration. What's perhaps not gone so readily recognised is that he's also been doing some fairly smart things with his warehouse floor space. Sports Direct is to close its 360000 square foot Wigan warehouse and in the process it'll save about £1.6 million a year. The Markland Park premises were acquired by Sports Direct relatively recently in 2014 as part of a £21 million deal. The reason for getting rid of the warehouse is not just the rent which is obviously considerable but the way the property market is moving Ashley has an opportunity to acquire, at reasonable rates, new warehouse space, which will be more efficient. Around 2 million square feet of large industrial and logistics floor space is going to be delivered speculatively in the northwest this year. That's the second largest amount of any region in the UK. Units will be more efficient to run and probably more saleable propositions in the long term. And that brings us to the final chunk of property news for this month, which is old news in a sense, and that is that industrial rents are continuing to grow. Figures produced by CBRE, the property brokerage, show that UK prime commercial rents increased by 0.1% in the first quarter of 2019, but that in the industrial sector, rents rose by 1%. Now, these aren't big numbers, but 0.1% is just one-tenth of 1%. In other words, industrial rents are rising 10 times faster than rents for shops or offices. This is why investors like the Canadians and like the Americans and shrewd locals like Mike Ashley are taking a punt on warehousing. So that brings us up to date with the property news for May 2019. So now it's the time of the podcast when we discuss humans plus robots. So why are we talking about this topic? Well, it's because we want to know what the jobs of the future will look like, what the role of the human is. And we want to know if our jobs can be automated. 
it's a really hot topic and we're talking about it in the magazine I imagine that you're talking about it with your teams or maybe you're not but hopefully this discussion will provoke you to so let me take you to a panel discussion which we recorded at a hotel in Heathrow it's always difficult to go to Heathrow and not be going on holiday but it was actually well worthwhile it was at an event called Kronos Live and they had a full day of fantastic content including us so I was very lucky to be joined by a familiar voice, Peter Ward, MD of UKWA. You would have heard him on our first podcast, actually, Black Friday's Back. It was Peter, myself, and John Manners-Bell, Managing Director of Transport Intelligence. It was in front of a live audience of about 30 people, and we were delighted to see audience members from companies like GIST and DHL. So we knew we were in the right place, talking in front of the right people. The panel went on for about an hour, I won't play the whole thing, but let me take you to the point where Peter Ward is describing the importance of people in complex shared user warehouses. What we're seeing in the market at the moment is a much greater demand for shared user facilities. And I think this is driven largely by the increasing demand as the industry is reshaping itself to serve today's technology-enabled consumer, we're seeing this increasing ambition to hold stock in multiple locations near to the urban areas and near to the consumers. And so there's a drive for what we're calling multiple stocking locations. And so it's, it's actually driving more towards the third-party sector to provide this on a shared user basis. And of course, when you're then handling multiple clients in a single facility, there's a much greater level of complexity because every client's requirements are slightly different. And that's where then it needs to be a little bit more tailored. I think really the industry's at a threshold, really. And there, there are multiple competing trends. I mean, Peter's already talked about two there. But I, I certainly feel that with the levels of automation in warehouses increasing, that is going to drive down prices in the shops, for example, which is going to stimulate demand, and that will actually stimulate employment. I think the, the difficult issue is that it won't necessarily stimulate employment in the warehousing and logistics sector. It may well be in other complementary sectors. And so this is, a, this is a very big issue, I think, particularly for the third-party logistics industry, which has, over the last two, three decades or more been about outsourcing of labour. So for the companies in the audience t today you know, who focus their business models around big outsourced labour contracts, I think there's a, there's a question which needs to be asked. If there aren't these tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, I think in Europe as a whole there's two million people employed in the uh, warehousing and logistics sector. You know, if there aren't these huge labour forces which need to be outsourced, what is their competitive or what is their, their value? What value are, are they bringing? If there is investment in robotics and automation, that's a capital play which other companies other than the big logistics providers are able to do very effectively. Brexit has exacerbated a problem that we already had. We already have identified a chronic labour shortage and that can surely only be dealt with by an increasing application of robotics and artificial intelligence and automation within this sector that has widely been regarded as a really heavily manual operation, as John has said. But we're on the cusp at the moment of moving this industry away from the old boy in the brown coat with the clipboard wandering around, you know, doing the stock taking to this very vibrant, high 
speed, high velocity industry now that is very, very dynamic. You know, it's the skills and the people that actually drive the technology that is the enabler. Mm -hmm. Human robots working together, it's just a question of what balance. The message to our members in the industry is if you don't embrace this and you don't start looking at where you can apply this automation into your operations, there's a danger that you could become an endangered species and be left, mm -hmm. left behind because this world now of logistics is, is changing and it's changing at a very rapid pace. And I think there's a big challenge not only to uh, logistics companies but also to governments as well, not only in this uh, country but around the world because, as Peter was saying, it's um, very labour-intensive but it's also a very low-skilled and low-cost labour business model as well. And the trouble with that, with the many repetitive tasks which are going to be automated, then what does that leave the, the people who are being relocated to other sectors or, or made unemployed? What, what role will they, they fulfil? There are certain roles, which uh, more technical roles, which will be, become available or created within warehouses, but there's, many of these roles will be de-skilled as well. And in many cases, you'll have labour uh, actually competing against very, very low-cost robotics, which will drive down the wage rates even further. So the challenge for government is, firstly, about reskilling or upskilling the labour at the moment, which are working in warehouses, to enable them to fulfil more value-adding roles. But it is the basic one of, of actually where are these jobs going to come from? So in a podcast that we released late last year, which was called Humans versus Robots, we interviewed a number of people, including Alex Harvey, head of automation at Ocado. Alex said that they're not expecting humanless dark warehouses in the future. John, is this true? Well, I think he's probably broadly right. But I would say that in certain parts of the world, certainly in China, that's exactly what uh, many companies are investing very, very heavily in, particularly Alibaba and JD.com. And there is this concept of dark warehouses where I think there's a handful of staff looking after a very, very large distribution centre. And I think that's the way that the industry certainly will develop, even maybe not to that same level of extreme. But certainly we are going to see fewer and fewer people employed in the logistics sector, and this is going to have very big implications, I think, not only for the industry, but for also society as a whole. Peter Ward. Yes, agree with all of that. I think what we're seeing also across the sector is, I think, an importance to recognise the difference between those companies that are operating a dedicated warehouse distribution centre, fulfilment centre, whatever you, you'd like to call it, either for their own account, someone like Ocado, where it's very much managed in-house, but it is very much a box around the Ocado's own operation, or what we call the contract logistics model, where companies like DHL and Wincanton and some of the big contract logistics provider provide that dedicated warehouse distribution centre activity, again, boxed around a single exclusive one-off client. John, could you talk a little bit more about the different types of robotics? There are three main types of robotics uh, being uh, utilised in warehouses. Firstly is the, the robots which move goods around. Mm -hmm. So automated movement of pallets, 
or cartons around the, the warehouse. And I suppose the best example of that is, is in Amazon, really, where they acquired a robotics uh, capabilities which was able to move the, the picking face to the pickers who were at the front of the store. That's one element. The second type of robotics are, are called collaborative robotics, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, will involve helping someone undertake repetitive jobs, for example, moving empty pallets or empty cartons around, putting packaging on, for example. So they, they are actually helping the worker. And the third, which is really at an early stage of development, is actually picking, picking uh, goods from, from racks, uh, from racking. So the, mm -hmm. those are the, the, the three, main, three main types of uh, robotics currently uh, under development or deployment. I'm just wondering if you could share some of the best UK examples of robotics and automation that you've both seen. Peter Ward? Without sort of breaking member or client confidentiality, there are examples out there and you can see some of the examples by, you know, putting sort of automated logistics into your Google search engine. There's lots of video examples out there. But the other thing that's an important message for us to the industry and to our members is there's a few myths that need to be dispelled. One is this isn't necessarily the preserve of the big players either. There is an investment into this. Mm -hmm. We've spent quite a bit of time looking at this and actually, you know, there's a return on investment possibly within three or four years on some fairly basic robotic picking operations that John mentioned. And it's a question of looking at your processes internally and breaking it down into kind of bite-sized chunks where you can automate a process or a part of a process without actually thinking, I need to go from this rather analogue manual warehouse that we've got today and suddenly become an Ocado kind of fully automated. That's not really what it's about. It's about finding the bits of the process that you can do in a kind of bite-sized mm -hmm. incremental way. Picking up John's point about role of government and everything, let's not mistake ourselves. This is a really low margin business, this business called logistics. And you know, most from large to small, most of this industry is working on extremely slim margins. And I think not just the role of government, but the role of society to actually understand that there's a huge amount of logistics operation going on out there at the moment that really isn't sustainable. You know, we can talk about, you know, delivering within the hour or next day and you know, having this stock all over the place to be able to achieve that. That all comes at a cost. And I think there's probably a little bit of a levelling back at the moment. Some of the retailers now starting to charge for return services rather than offer it as a free service. And we'll all be familiar as consumers with you know, delivery choices now. So you can get your delivery in seven days maybe for included in the price, but you pay a little bit extra for the two-day service or the, or the next day or your Amazon Prime type of delivery. But... Some of that's going to change, I think, and there's going to be a further levelling back of this. And the consumer has to understand, there's big talk at, at the macro level about rebalancing the economy. There's a huge amount of emphasis on everything being low cost, low cost, and you know, tomorrow, today, tomorrow. And the logistics industry will not sustain all of this activity for that kind of on-demand situation without an increase in margin and it certainly won't be able to invest in this kind of technology without charging for it. It was at this point that we threw open the debate to our live audience so that they could ask our panel for some insight. 
Let's join the point where Richard Tomlin from DHL was asking what the restrictions are about the development of this type of technology. I'd like to ask the experts today for their views on any blockers, limiters, anything that's stopping this happening quickly in terms of, is it, I don't know, batteries, safety, speed, logic, return on investment? What's stopping this happening quicker? If you were talking about uh, augmented reality glasses, for, for example, which uh, actually has been deployed by DHL in various facilities, I think, around, around Europe, I think uh, my understanding is that one of the, the basic limiters on that is the actual the, the battery, length of time of the battery that, that it will work from. So you have these sort of technological challenges which will be overcome as we move forward but then I think the more important challenges will become those which are generated by so the the social impact of, of these uh, of automation so if, if you're talking about uh, removing hundreds of thousands of jobs from the industry then obviously the labor organizations the unions are going to be very very interested in that and they will do everything that they can to actually delay the onset of those new technologies because it will have an impact on their members, not only in terms of jobs, but probably also in terms of uh, wages as well. And then, of course, there'll have to be some sort of response by government. So, you know, how does it deal with that? And, uh, of course, there are many different uh, ideas about how they could deal with it, paying people a wage for doing nothing. I mean, these are looking maybe 10, 15 years out. But how is the industry going to deal from being one which is labour-driven to capital-driven, and then, in which case, generate tax revenues because you don't have the labour within the industry itself? These are sort of very big fundamental issues which governments, labour organisations, as well as companies will, will have to address. Coming back to, uh, to Richard's question there in, in terms of the, the sort of inhibitors, I do think that it's back to what I said earlier, it's, it's a cost decision in a, in a real low margin environment and you guys will be only too aware the amount of pressure that you're under, particularly from the retailers that sort of squeeze the last pips out of us in this great industry of ours. But I think it sort of falls into a couple of categories really in terms of what you're looking to do. The first one is you know, where there's an opportunity to introduce some technology to optimise an existing process, you know, to get a better pick rate or a better pick rate efficiency and speed up process in an existing environment. I think, you know, there are examples where you can get that quite early return on investment and obviously, depending on your contractual, you know, arrangements, even share some of that with your with your client joint invest you know risk and reward because you see the returns coming you know where it's looking at almost inventing a new business model around technology then my view is that very often the low margins that we have here just preclude that well let's say it's a much bigger challenge hello it's peter johnson from dhl one of the barriers to adopting this technology is a lack of standardisation within the industry in terms of you know, packaging, material handling, sizes of goods. You know, at the moment, there's a plethora of different robotic designs being developed. Is there any drive from the industry or perhaps from government or perhaps you know, we have things like IATA standards um, that they were all established. Is there any collaboration going on at any sort of level to try and create global standards to assist with the adoption of this sort of technology. John, if you could start. Yeah, very, very briefly, I would say, not that I'm aware of, apart from the fact that everything is being standardised around maybe Amazon 
or maybe some of these other big e-commerce companies. They are the ones who are, are driving uh, robotic and technology um, development and investment. And what tends to happen is that they lead the way and others follow with them. So at a sort of, I suppose, more micro level, yes, there are very many different standards, but actually the standards are being set in Europe and in the US by Amazon, who are the ones actually driving forward the industry in a way that every other company seems to be seems to be following and also raising customer expectation in a way that other companies are forced to follow as well. Yeah, I'd agree. And it does take time. I mean, you know, it, it probably took the industry at least 10 years to agree on a common barcode standard. These things do take time. We've seen it with data integration from all the various um, sort of EDI messaging formats. But, you know, cloud technology seems to have solved you know, a lot of that. So it will take time. And again, just goes to prove that I think we're, as far as the logistics sector is concerned, we're at the start of the process here, or maybe just off the starting lines of a process. So there's a lot to do. Yes, Peter, there is a lot to do. So that was Kronos Live. I wanted Vin Granger from iForce to also be part of the debate, but unfortunately he was unable to attend. But he was able to join me for a phone conversation later on. So Vin is an operator, and it's the operator that's at the heart of this debate. I was keen to find out from Vin what he thought of John's point about the difficulty that some businesses may have in getting planning permission from local authorities if they're not creating jobs. Not particularly, no. I suppose it's the different sectors that you start to look into. Where our business focuses specifically on retailers that have got more of a specialised commercial or functional requirements, there's no shortage of activity requirements for humans to participate in. I suppose in certain business sectors, if you're applying for planning permission for a building that's fully automated and perhaps you know solely moving pallets around in a very automated and limited human interaction with that, I suppose there may well be different views by local authorities to focus more on granting permission where there's more jobs being created. But I suppose when you, you start to look at retail of the future and the accessibility of things like manufacturers or product suppliers to provide access to their products directly through online channels and so on, the sectors are changing and retail is changing. Big stores are not necessarily the thing of the future. So with greater accessibility through online channels and so on for retailers or new retailers and or distributors, manufacturers to bring their products, give accessibility to the marketplace, then the traditional view of a big warehouse that's automated with limited uh, human uh, requirements. I think that the whole sort of proposition is changing in the future. I then asked Vin some other questions that we thought you would be interested in, like what's his preferred automation supplier? He told us about a company called Exatech, which is based in Lille in France. They've won a number of awards, so they're certainly of interest. Here is Vin explaining why he chose them. There's many videos uh, that you can find on YouTube, see discounts, have 
position operations over in Bordeaux, seeing that the operations within the manufacturing facility in Lille. So being able to watch and watch and see that the demonstration of that whole process, it is quite remarkable to be honest. With this particular system, which I'm not aware of, what's the role of the human? The robots effectively go up into some very, very tall shelving all the way up to the top of the warehouse. Effectively go into the aisle, climb up the, the racking, pull out the toes, and then take it to a pick station. So the, the role of the human in this is not dissimilar to some of your traditional pick to light, where a toe comes back to a workstation, the picker will take whatever items out of the tote and put it directly into an order tote or directly into the dispatch carton. So not dissimilar to traditional pick to light. The differentiation with the Exitex solution is just that the, the greater flexibility, the, the fundamental design of that concept just provides. It's quite a different technology in as much as you've got a, a robot which, which will move three-dimensionally within very tall shelving rackings and it's quite different from the sort of the traditional sort of the old Kiva system or what's now the sort of the Amazon automation concept of picking whole shelves up. It's quite a different spin on that whole sort of concept of send a robot into the racking, pick up a toe to bring it out to the Pixelite workstation. I think it's quite a leap forward in the general thinking of how the height of traditional warehouse can be used effectively while still maintaining the flexibility of with robots to move totes from A to B. But the scalability and the flexibility of that solution, in our view, sort of surpasses the other options that are on the market at the moment. So this debate is about how people will work alongside automation. So here's Vin explaining exactly how people in his operation will work alongside the Exotech system. What does this mean for the workers of tomorrow? Um, we, we've been pondering that within iForce for a while. I think one of the things that start to emerge when you, you sort of consider that question of accessibility to the workforce, such as part-timers, there's potentially people who may have impairments or disabilities or whatever, but there's a there's an untapped workforce out there and there's scarcity of labour in the traditional sense. You might have your traditional 6-2-2-10 shift or whatever, but I think there's going to be a growing requirement for people who are prepared to work part-time hours. They can't necessarily commit to the, the training requirements that might be required for some traditional roles. As we start to move into the future, I think the the greater accessibility and uh, the cost-effectiveness of robotics and other forms of automation, whether it's automation through software or automation through physical pieces of kit and appliances and so on, I think it's going to open up greater accessibility to a, a different labour force in the future, such as part-time people, students, people with potential you know, impairments, you know, in a traditional world, to be a picker, you needed to be able to walk quite a long distance and sustain that over a whole shift. With the advent of robotics and such like, there's potentially greater accessibility of people who are less able, 
still to contribute effectively to an operation. And I think also as the Generation X, Millennials and so on, I just sort of, I think about my own daughters of, of that age, where the, the traditional view of go and get a job, we might have had in our generation, that mindset is changing where you might want almost like a portfolio career and being able to change or hold down a, several part-time jobs at the same time. So the training requirements that can be, or required traditionally, can be changed with the advent of software, technology and robotics. So I think the whole traditional view of go and get a job and that's your job, I think that mindset is starting to change. I felt that I learned a lot recording this episode and I hope that you did too. One of the statements that's really stuck with me from John Manners Bell was the fact that only a handful of jobs will transfer into these new fully automated facilities and that it's unrealistic to think anything else. It's also important to note Peter Ward's comments around the complex requirements of shared user warehouses, which simply require people. This is what is needed now. It was good to find out about a technology supplier that I hadn't heard of before, Exotech, from Vin Granger. And I went away after and actually YouTubed it to see the technology in action. It's pretty impressive stuff. I was also enthused by Vin's description of the future workforce, part-time workers, people who may not have been able to work in logistics before because they weren't physically able, now could. I think these are really interesting points that we should all be thinking about, discussing and hopefully developing. They also show how far we've come since we published Humans versus Robots less than a year ago. And it makes me wonder what we'll be discussing in less than a year's time as well. So if you'd like to learn even more about automation and what people in the industry are talking about, then please read our May issue where there's a number of articles on automation, including case studies and interviews with suppliers. Where do you find our May issue? Well, if you visit www.shdlogistics.com, there's a tab that says Back Issues, and you can simply click on the May issue and you can access the whole magazine there. Back in 2015, I joined Kerner and Nagel, Lydos and the Ministry of Defence for a groundbreaking event in Doncaster to mark the construction of a new 80,000 square metre Defence Logistics Fulfilment Centre. It was my first encounter with Defence Logistics and if I'm honest, there hasn't been very many since, which is why I was keen to interview one of the members of the Logistics 100s who worked for Lydos and was in the Air Force for 27 years. Damien Alexander is the Programme Director for the £6.5 billion Logistics Commodities and Services Transformation Programme with the UK Ministry of Defence and Vice President and Managing Director of Lydos UK Logistics Division. He spent 27 years in the Air Force in Logistics and Defence. I admitted to Damien in the interview that I didn't fully understand what frontline logistics really meant. He gave me an example of transferring 30 large vehicles from Europe to Norway. I started the interview by asking Damien what the biggest challenge to logistics is in 2019. 
I'd split it into two, I think. There is a real growing understanding, I think, of the professionalism and the capability that logistics offers. So you don't have to look far to see the impact it has on our economies and on productivity and on profit and all the things that keep companies running. So logistics as a profession, I think I've seen over my first career grow in prominence and people understand the value of looking at logistics as an important component of industry and of business. I do think, you know, that's a continuing journey. So I think that, you know, one of the biggest challenges is getting people to understand that this industry that we are passionate about and really, you know, work within is a profession. It's a career that we should see people come into from an early age. People should see it as a career of choice. So I think that professionalism is one thing. I think the second is the utility and utilisation of technology. Because if there is one thing that's going to enable us to transform the industry, given that all the great people that come in bring the skills they bring, is technology. And I think we're very much at the leading edge of that. But at the same time, who knows in five, ten years where autonomous vehicles, the Internet of Things, machine learning, all of those well-understood phrases where it really takes the industry. And how would you say the challenges that you face are different to retail, manufacturing? Is there anything you'd pull out because of the nature of what you do that's particularly different to those other sectors? The general answer is we all face the same challenges. If we look at the programme that I have the privilege of running, you know, we're dealing with everything from buying from a supply base that might be facing particular challenges, you know, in either economic terms or we mentioned Brexit, right through to we deliver to the front line. We, we deploy people sometimes to exercises. There was a, an exercise recently with the MOD where we deployed a small team of staff to effectively run the reverse supply chain. And so depending where we operate, the challenges are different. They can be different in terms of geography mm-hmm. or some of the local pressures. And because of the you know, large nature of the programme, we're talking over a thousand people based UK and, and occasionally deployed, probably servicing up to 600 worldwide locations with some of our distribution. Mm. The challenges are different in different places and different sectors. So I'd say they're no different to the challenges that are faced by different parts, retail or others, but it really depends where you look in the organisation, what those challenges look like. You deliver product to the front line. Can you paint a bit of a bigger picture for me of what that really means? Because I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big question, and the front line might be an air force base, an army yep. barracks, okay. you know, a navy dockyard. The front line might be, as I used the example previously, an exercise location such as Oman for, say, Syria. We also use different means to distribute items. A good example might be our support to Norway, mm-hmm. where we enable through one of our partners a rail move. So a rail move for the army to move 30 plus large vehicles by rail from the UK all the way through Europe and to Norway. And this is a capability because we have the industry expertise and the understanding of how supply chains work, we can provide that service. So really, it, it depends on geography. It depends on the means. So, you know, we're, we can move things by, by air, by sea, by road, by rail. And it could be small distribution runs on a daily basis or sometimes, you know, a more frequent basis just to our frontline bases. Or it might be slightly longer supply chains to a particular deployed operational commitment. So, as you'd imagine, thousands of transactions involved in that, a lot of complexity, sometimes certainly when you're dealing with overseas, you know, customs and, and, and regulations. So there's a lot within the service to the front line, and hopefully that gives you a feel for where the front line is and the type of services we provide. Yeah. Can you tell me about some of your other customers? Our current customer base within LCST is clearly the services, mm-hmm. the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, you know, we do things with MOD. 
so not in logistics, but in wider lineups. We're working with the Scottish Government, a good example, uh, and we work with, with other defence customers from an information services uh, capability. If you broaden out even further for LIDOS, you know, we, we work with NASA, we work with those providing support to their polls, and we do a lot of, lot of government support. So, you know, it really is a, it's a multinational company, but from a UK base, and, and talking specifically about what I do in logistics, the customer is very much the Ministry of Defence and the Armed Forces. And the facility I went to see, it was in Donington. Could you tell me a bit more about that facility? So the Defence Fulfillment Centre at Donington, £83 million invested, uh, built on time and, and, and budget. And now, because we're in the final year of our transformation, so effectively we've taken some 70-odd warehouses across the previous MD estate, and we're consolidating stocks into different places, we're making sure that fast-moving stock is in the right place, you know, so that we get the productivity and, and turn that's needed. And it's now up and running. Over the course of this year, we're still bringing in more stocks. So, you know, the, the transition is still happening and that's enabling us to free up other sites and other warehouses for MOD reuse. But if you were to go to the fulfillment centre today, it's got a buzz about it. It's active. There's product and stock coming in, going out, going onto the, onto the shelves and into our automated systems. And we've had a number of high profile visits there, actually, in the, you know, in the last, last few months, from including ministers. And I think it's fair to say that everyone comes away very, very impressed with what is ultimately a state-of-the-art capability for defence. And back to the point about defence being such an important customer, I think that's part of our mission, really, is to provide that world-class service, that world-class supply chain to defence to enable it to do you know, what it does. You know, if you get the opportunity to visit again, you know, please do. I think you'll be very impressed with what's being, being done at, uh, at the Fulfillment Centre. What do you think the warehouse of the future will look like? So it's a great question. For me, I'll come first to the important thing of people, because although automation and technology is absolutely critical to logistics, people, you know, for me, are still a vital, a core component. So that ability to understand customer need, to react to things in a quick manner, and to really direct and lead an operation. So people will be involved. You know, I think sometimes there's a worry that when people think about warehouses of the future, they just see robots and autonomy. And I think, of course, that enables us to deliver efficiencies and, and take our cost and provide a better service. But I see it as being really a combination of more probably investment in technology, but at the same time, you can't take the human, the person out of the loop. And for me, you know, they're absolutely critical to the successful operation of a warehouse. Now, whether we see more and more consolidation in warehouses or more disaggregation to local sites, I think it depends on the industry. And I think it depends on the means of delivery. You know, it's great to see now some technology with robotic vehicles taking that last mile delivery you know which is a really interesting cutting edge capability so i think it'll be a combination of, of, of people processes uh, technology and i think we're on that journey now is there any technology that you're reviewing at the moment that you could tell us about that you think that would be something we would like to use i wouldn't talk about any specifics so you know i think it's fair to say that we're interested in systems that enable us to improve service to the front line I think business intelligence and data is a, a huge challenge for any uh, logistics provider. So really being able to use the data that we've in, inherently got within our systems and our capability to provide a much better service. So we're really keen to make sure we, you know, we're looking at sort of business intelligence and um, data analytics and, and using that data to best effect. And of course, there's a lot of other technologies that we could use. But it really is up to how the customer wants to see us deliver. So, you know, I hear a lot of talk in the industry about drone delivery. 
or about delivery by you know different means well clearly we have a, a good understanding of what those capabilities are and we're linked into the industry but a lot of it comes back to the customer what they want us to provide can you see the a time when you have data scientists or data engineers within your operation we've already got a, a number of people in the organization that sort of have that skill set that i think will become increasingly important how do you attract new talent to your business we're a growing and emerging company in the industry and look at some of our credentials as a company. You know, it attracts talent from different industries, science and technology company, and you know, some 31,000 worldwide employees. But basically, we have a lot of people that really, really are passionate about the service that we provide and the customer. And I think it's so important to have a passion for the customer and the service. And so a lot of people come to us because they've got the skill sets and they see us as a company they want to join. And they're passionate about providing a service, in our case, to defence and in the wider LIDOS UK to a lot of other areas, be that Scottish Government and other you know, important, very important customers. So I think there is a natural attraction there. We're one of the world's most ethical companies in the 2018 Ethosphere rating. So you know, we, we work really hard to build on our reputation and want to attract people in. So I think the combination of those things hopefully sees us as an employer of choice. People want to come and work for us. And when they do, they find a fulfilling career. Could you see yourself working in defence logistics? It's a bit different to retail, isn't it? Or is it? If you'd like to listen to the interview in full, please visit www.shdlogistics.com. If you'd like to hear even more from Damien, then please join us at IMHX 2019, where Damien will be speaking. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. I'd like to thank all our guests, Peter Ward, John Mannersbell, Vin Granger, Damien Alexander. Also thanks to property editor David Tame and the team, Rihanna Kettle, Joel Martin and David Tran. As for the magazine, the May issue is out. If you don't receive the hard copy, please remember that you can get it on www.shdlogistics.com. You just need to hit the tab that says Back Issues. Also, we have the SHD Logistics Conference coming up on the 14th of May. I think there may be a couple of tickets left if it's of interest. If it is, visit www.logisticsconference.co.uk. If you haven't entered the Logistics Awards yet, then I suggest that you do. We're looking for outstanding projects that will recognise your teams for their hard work. There's still time to enter, so please do. Visit www.logisticsawards.co.uk I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We're always open to new ideas for podcast topics, so please feel free to email me, kirsty.adams at informa.com. The next podcast is Peaks and Black Friday. And we'll have some digital leaders talking about what they're doing in preparation for these really important times. But until then, you'll hear regular news updates and out-of-office episodes from myself and David Tran. So stay tuned.